Well, hello and welcome to Downtown the Podcast. From the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine, Rich Kimball and Carrie Haskell here. This is where our daily show, Downtown, originates from each and every weekday, 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Zone Radio stations of Maine and streaming audio all around the world on our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com. We're brought to you every week by the good people of Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Well, this time around, we talk with a couple of legendary figures, one from the world of acting and the other from music. Coming up in the second half of the podcast, Gene Cordish, founding member of the 1960s group The Rascals, who had a ton of top 40 hits, three number ones along the way. He chronicles the rise and fall of his musical career and, and his life in a new book called Good Lovin', My Life as a Rascal. First, though, so excited to have the opportunity recently to talk with a Hollywood legend known for work in films like Picnic, The Man with the Golden Arm, Vertigo, Bell Book and Candle, Al Joey. She walked away from the movie business at the height of her fame in the 1950s to pursue other forms of art, including painting, poetry, and songwriting. And at 87 years old, she is as sharp as ever. What a treat it was, because she does not give a whole lot of interviews for us to have the chance to talk with actress and artist Kim Novak. Well, first of all, thank you so much for making time for us today. It is a delight for us to get the opportunity to talk with you. Good. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I watched the wonderful CBS piece uh, that was done recently with Mo Rocca, and it showed uh, the art exhibit, uh, the show in Ohio, uh, with your art on display, and you were there for the opening of that exhibit. Yeah, it was my retros- retrospective, which is, I mean, quite an honor. I'm so thrilled. I mean, to me, it's better than an Oscar. Well, I'm I- recognized for my life's work. I, I have to say, Joe, watching that, it seemed like uh, uh, that outlet, which is what you intended to do all along in your life, provides you with uh, exactly. all the satisfaction and perhaps more than you got in your acting career. More, much more. Well, because I felt, uh, well, of course, when you appreciate it, it always feels good. And I never felt really appreciated in Hollywood. I mean, at least not by my reviewers. <laughs> We're not. I think it's much kinder now. I think that people can understand a little bit more about who I am and who I was. And I think I think at that time, you know, in the 50s, 60s, acting was more popular rather than reacting. I'm a reactor rather than an actor. It's interesting, too, because I think everybody who watches movies or television shows has an image in their mind of what that life is like. And I'm sure... It was hard for some people to understand why you would largely walk away from that when you did. But when we see the way you have lived your life in the years since, it becomes abundantly clear that that was a wonderful choice for you. Well, it was. It turned out, I mean, you never know when you leave something uh, what it's going to do, but um, how it's going to affect you. But, I, you know, sometimes you've just got to, you've got to make up your mind and do it for what, whatever. And it turned out perfectly because I felt reborn, actually, after I left living in Carmel, Big Sur. Uh, I, I did. I actually felt like, like I was, for the first time, finding out who I was, who I am. Do you look back on it now almost as if your acting career got you sidetracked from your real passion? Well, that's true. It did. It interrupted my... Uh, I would have definitely kept moving in that direction. But um, as it turned out, 
I think it it was a sidetrack, but it was a good sidetrack because I learned a lot from directors like Alfred Hitchcock. And in my art, I, I, I don't know if it's because of my influence from Alfred Hitchcock or not, but I love uh, creating a mystery. I like uh, painting where you it looks like one thing when you first look at it, but if you really study it, it has other meanings. And so there's a lot of mystery in my work, and, and that's why I like to write poems uh, oftentimes to go with my paintings to give clues. It's kind of like Albert Hitchcock when he drops clues in different different places. Well, in my painting, I've got clues uh, written in my verses to help explain uh, my paintings while they're they look, as I say, you, you can't always judge what it is, what the meaning is. I want to talk a little bit about uh, your work with Alfred Hitchcock and, and what is hard for people to believe, a movie that did not get overwhelmingly great reviews at the time, but 60 years later, people look at, as, as in some surveys, the greatest American film ever made, Vertigo. And, and I understand that you identified with the two characters you played, but especially Judy and Jimmy Stewart's character's efforts to mold her into the person he wanted was, to you, perhaps similar to what Hollywood wanted to do with you. Exactly. I think that's why the role came fairly easy for me in the sense that I identified so completely with the studio trying, you know, they, they hire you originally, they find you, and they, they find something special in you. But then they go about trying to change everything about you <laughs> so that it's to their image. You know, they want to play it safe. So they want to say, well, let's see. Let's give her a Marilyn Monroe mouth and let's give her the eyebrows of Joan Crawford. I mean, and so they go about trying to make these changes. And it was a struggle for me right from the beginning, trying to uh, what I actually used to do was go into into my room or go into a bathroom on the set and take off some of that extra makeup and stuff <laughs> and, and try to bring a little back of me. Uh, I think it made a difference. You had a good working relationship with Alfred Hitchcock, and he really let you have uh, some say and some influence into the development of your characters. Well, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, what Alfred Hitchcock is... He's really technically involved with all the different things like the music and where you stand and how fast you are delivering your lines, things like that. But he never gets into your mind. He always hires people that he feels have whatever it is he's looking for. And uh, so what I loved about working with Alfred Hitchcock was the fact that he allowed you to uh, to be or to become your the character in your own way. He doesn't tell you how to think. He tells you where to stand, how to stand, how to dress, all of those things. But he allows you the freedom of your mind. And that was the most important thing to me. It always has been. I, I need to find my own feelings about it. And he never messed with that. But he sure messed with the wardrobe. <laughs> well, yes, and it was that, uh, that gray suit that has become so iconic that, uh, as I understand, you didn't want to wear because it was uncomfortable. And then that was sort of the point he wanted to make. He wanted your character uncomfortable. Exactly. It was so interesting because I don't know. And then he had me wearing black shoes. Well, I always felt like a, a dark shoe is sort of grounding you to the earth. And <laughs> I thought, oh, no. And so when I discussed it with him and he said, oh, I, I, 
I want you to wear that suit and those shoes. And then I went home and I thought, gosh, darn it, I don't want to wear that. I don't like it. And then I thought, oh, of course. It's my clue on my character. And so that discomfort that I that I had when when wearing that suit and and all uh, paid off because it was the character. And yet on Judy, he said, now you can wear any color shoes you want to. <laughs> and I said, oh, good. I don't want to be grounded. I want same color as my legs. He said, great, you do it. Because he wanted me to feel at ease as Judy, although as he starts to change her, she gets very uncomfortable because she's being put back in all the things. So it, it, was, uh, it worked out perfectly. A good relationship with that director. And uh, well, how was the relationship working with your co-star, Jimmy Stewart? Oh, you couldn't be better. I was so fortunate because, you know, I'm a simple person from Chicago, never studied acting and things like that. And to work with Jimmy Stewart, he was the same kind of person like I am. He's a reactor. He was or is. I mean, in heaven somewhere. But I mean, in other words, rather than being an actor, he was a reactor, and both of us did. We both reacted to the opposite character, I to him, he to me. I mean, it, it was just uh, ideal. And you would work with him again in a, another wonderful movie, Bell, Book, and Candle. Well, that was one of my very favorites. It was wonderful, and Jimmy was so perfect for that role. And I liked being a witch, a good witch. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that was a wonderful movie. I loved it. Jimmy Stewart's the best person anyone could ever be around or, you know. We're talking yeah, with, the best. We're talking with Kim Novak here on Danton, and uh, you've worked with so many talented people through the years. But I have to say, one of my very favorite performances of yours uh, came, I, I think, a year later, 1959, with Frederick March in a great movie, Middle of the Night. Oh, yes. I, I adored that movie. The studio did not want me to do it. They said, don't do it, because they wanted me to be in glamorous uh, roles. Um, but the, the role that I played, I just adored, and I identified with her completely. And it was wonderful to to be the uh, uh, kind of person that maybe needed a father image, uh, someone to, uh, the, something she didn't have. And, uh, and of course, it, it, it was just, for me, a wonderful experience. And to work with Frederick March, who has had been a movie giant for years uh, as the older man with a young girl finding a different kind of relationship. It was wonderful. Now, you worked uh, early on. You were signed to Columbia, and you, you had some battles with Harry Cohn, but largely the, the biggest battle was over your name, and you wouldn't back down from that. No, I mean, some. I felt, well, especially if you hear the name, they wanted to call me. They wanted to call me Kit Marlowe. Well, I could not identify because to me that wasn't a real person. For one thing, they said, oh, we're going to write up the fact that you used to be called Kit because of a kitten like you. And I, I don't identify with a kitten. I love cats, but I mean, that that's not who I am. And so I did. I, I held it. And also, I think, well, roots are really important. You've got to feel that you came from somewhere in order to go somewhere. And uh, so it was important that I kept my name. Uh, very important to me. And uh, was it your idea to bring back that name that they wanted to use when you uh, played Kit Marlowe in Falcon Crest? Oh, you've done your history. <laughs> you checked it out. <laughs> you. Yes, it was. It was because I hadn't, I, you know, when I left Hollywood, I left it. But on the other hand, when they suddenly 
had this, uh, and I thought, you know, I feel like doing something. I'd like to see what tel- television is like. And I said, I'll do it, but I want to be called Kit Marlowe. <laughs> <laughs> and that worked out fun, because then it made it really fun for me to have that tie-in. There's been so much attention, deservedly so, paid to the Me Too movement in the last couple of years. And, and you came up in the business at a time when studio heads were often all powerful and, and, and took advantage of uh, of young actresses. How were you able to hold your own and protect yourself in those situations? Well, it's true. Me Too existed then very much so. Uh, but I, uh, well, for one thing, Harry Cohn was the boss and he didn't. He wanted to make sure that he had people working for him that would respect him and listen to everything he tells. And so he had no interest in, no interest in trying to find a girlfriend with someone he wanted to work for him because he wanted to be the boss. But, of course, there were always the producers and people that you met along the way that would test and see if they could seduce you. Um, luckily, I... I, I was never. I was always um, very independent and had a mind of my own. In fact, that made it difficult sometimes with some directors I worked with. But um, I, I, I had a. I was able to be in control of myself, of my own body, and my own mind, and that's what mattered to me. And so um, I, I, I had issues with it with people trying to become like that. But I feel I was lucky in, that I was strong in that. In that uh, sense, we heard a friend barking in the background there, and, and I wonder that's if you could. My, that's my little dog, Patches. Well, could you talk a little bit about the importance of animals in your life? Your husband is a retired veterinarian. What is what is your love and the love you've received back from animals meant to your life? Um, well, it's, it's everything to my life. Um, I've always felt a, a great closeness and attachment to them, but interestingly enough. When I left Hollywood, uh, I I got several different creatures, and one was a goat, and uh, a wonderful little African pygmy goat. I just loved him. Anyway, but the thing is that he taught me a real lesson that you you have to. And and when I left Hollywood, it was to find myself in order to find out who I really was, what do I really stand for? Because you get so confused when you're playing all different roles. Mm. Every time you played one. You, you left with a little bit of that character still attached somehow. And so when I when I got out of Hollywood, I thought, I'm going to get some animals. I want to get an animal particular that would be not like a dog is going to love you no matter what you do. I mean, some awful people do terrible things to the dogs, and the dogs love them. So I, I knew that I, I could find a dog that would love me. But I thought, I saw this billy goat, and I thought, <laughs> I wonder what this goat and interestingly enough, we, I mean, we we were we became one of my very best friends. But but if I would ever wear a scent like a perfume or a or a whatever, he didn't trust me, and he'd want to get me with his horns. And so, <laughs> all I learned so many lessons from different animals. In fact, that's the book I really wanted to write was called Creature Teachers, because they teach you so much. Um, you know they. When I left, again, I didn't want to be influenced by how much money I had or how I looked. And so with an animal, they're not judging you by um, what's your wealth or, or anything like that. So you really got to know who you were 
because of how they treated you. Did they love you? Did they respect you? And that you earn from animals, especially the wilder the animal, the more uh, true it is that they are that that you can find out who you are and what you stand for. No question about that. We we mentioned your art. You talked about your poetry. You also have done some songwriting through the years as well. As I did, as a matter of fact, Harry Harry Belafonte uh, recorded one of my songs. It wasn't a hit, but I did the lyrics for it. I used to go with someone that was a musician. He worked with Nina Simone. And um, and so we would oftentimes sit out on the ocean on the rocks, whale watching, and uh, he'd be playing. And I'd always written poetry since I was a little girl. And so I I just uh, started writing, and, and we sold uh, quite a few of our songs. As I say, no big hits, but we did them. And they were, they were pretty good, mostly folk songs. But I love to write. People can get a look at some of your art at your website, kimnovacartist.com. It has been such a treat and an honor for us to have a chance to talk with you today. Thank you so very much for making time for us, and we wish you continued good health and success. Thanks. It was very enjoyable talking to you. You have a a good time, and hi to all your people out there. I'm sending you love all the way. That is Kim Novak on Downtown the Podcast, and Carrie, that's Listen to that again, and I, and I say, did we really do that? We really talk with Kim Novak on our little show. There are guests that come on that just make the moments very surreal, and, and she was one of those. And so good, so honest and upfront and sharp, and just a, an absolute delight to talk with Kim Novak here on Downtown, the podcast. Well, when we come back, the lead guitarist of one of the biggest bands of the 1960s, The Rascals. Gene Cornish talks all about it next after this quick word from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. I don't know what it's all about But I feel I'll soon find out I'm sure never felt this secure Back in 1966, the quartet burst on the scene with their very first song, Ain't Gonna Eat My Heart Out Anymore. They would go on to have 13 top 40 hits, three that went all the way to number one. Dino Donnelly, Felix Cavallari, Eddie Brigatti, and our next guest on Downtown the Podcast, guitarist Gene Cornish. The Rascals, one of the great bands of the 1960s, had a rapid rise and a and a fairly rapid fall as well. Once they left Atlantic Records and uh, went on to Columbia, the hits dried up. They've gone on to reunite a couple of times, including for a Broadway show uh, several years ago. Gene Cornish is the author of a new memoir entitled Good Lovin', My Life as a Rascal. And we had a great time talking with him about his time in the band, post-Rascals, and his ever-interesting life as well. Here's Gene Cornish 
on Downtown, the podcast. Shane, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for calling. Hello to everybody there. Love the book, love the band's music through the years, and this is a, it's really a fascinating story. And I, yeah, I want to start at the beginning. I think for anybody to be successful in life, you got to have somebody who believes in you, and it sounds like a, a key person in that for you was the guy who who was not your natural father but became your dad in more ways than one. Can you talk a little bit about how important Ted Cornish was to your life uh, and your profession? You know, when he married my mother, it was uh, I was four years old. So mom, mom gave me life, and Ted Cornish gave me a life. And basically, he was my supporter all the way through. He was a hardworking, blue-collar man. We owned a sporting goods store where he sold baked tackle and guns for hunting and fishing. And basically, we, we he did without so that we could I could have, in those days, you were tuxedos. So I had a few tuxedos. I had a great amplifier, a great guitar. We bought a station wagon to transport the band and just was there 100%. Well, like a lot of kids growing up in the 50s, uh, the world changed for you in many ways when you saw Elvis Presley on TV for the very first time. Yeah, the Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey show. Uh, I I was playing checkers with my grandfather. It was a winter's day, and a lot of snow outside. Mom and Dad had to go to an event, and we had a black-and-white TV up in the corner. And the sound was off, but I saw a guy come out with sideburns, a checkered jacket, a guitar, and, and, and a, a bass drum, a drum, bass, and another guitar. And I turned it up, and he was doing Heartbreak Hotel. And it was life-changing at that time. I've had a couple of life-changers in my life. But he was it. He was it at that moment. And it wouldn't be too long before we, you would uh, form your own bands, uh, like the Satellites, uh, the Nobles as well. But how did you get together with Joey D to become a member of the Starlighters? Well, our ba- I had a band called the Unbeatables, and uh, we had a manager who got us an audition at the Pepman Lounge, where Joey D had started and got his hit, the Pepman Twist. Uh, he wasn't there. It was, this was a couple of years after. This was 1964. And he had a hit in 61, I believe it was. And uh, we got to play there for about six weeks. And then they had, they, had, they got a different band, and we moved out. And we got a job because of David Bergatti. Eddie Bergatti's brother, who was the original Starlighter, helped us get a job at Joey D's club with Starlighter from around the corner. Uh, the band was from Rochester, New York. Everybody got a little homesick and missed their girlfriend. It's not me. So they left, and Joey offered me the job, and that's where I met Felix and Eddie. And uh, that would, of course, uh, lead to you guys uh, becoming the Rascals. And one of the things you talk about in the early days uh, of the band is that Felix certainly had uh, a great sense for business and and what decisions to make early in your career. Well, he was only a year older than us, you know. But uh, he was educated. He went to Syracuse University, and he studied uh, pre-med. Uh, much, to the, much to the demise of his father, who was a <laughs> he put him into college, and Felix discovered Ray Charles. <laughs> so that was the beginning of Felix's career. <laughs> and uh, you guys ended up signing with Atlantic. You had a lot of offers, and you, you turned down some good offers on the way, including turning down Phil Spector. But, but among the deciding factors with Atlantic was the idea of being the first white band on Atlantic Records, and also being given a tremendous amount of artistic freedom. They said we could produce ourselves. They would give us 
what we call a, a referee. Ali <laughs> <laughs> Dow, the famous engineer, and an up-and-coming Grammy-winning producer that was just up-and-coming at the time named Marie Martin. Uh, we weren't charged any studio time. We were given free reign. And uh, it, it, it couldn't have been a better situation. Uh, we, we got that we got that record contract with Sid Bernstein, who came to see us one, one day when we were off at the barge. And there was only like five or six people in the room. And uh, it was on a Monday night. And he drove. He had, it was taken. Actually, he was abducted from the city to Long Island forced to go see us. And so he knew everybody in the record business. He was promoting the Beatles at Shea Stadium. So every move that was made seemed to be blessed. Well, it's so interesting. I mean, we talked with a lot of music people on the show, and you realize what a, a small world it is. We were just talking to Billy Vera last week, and he was talking about Arif Martin and, and how incredibly talented he was. You know, I just sent a book to Billy about two weeks ago, and he sent me his book. Uh, Billy's a New York boy, you know, and uh, he made some great records. He's a terrific singer, so. Well, uh, you guys got off to a great start with uh, Ain't Gonna Eat My Heart Out Anymore, and then the world changed with the release of that second single, Good Lovin', just absolutely blew up. What was that experience like for you guys? Well, you know, we recorded it in the studio because we... All of a sudden, with the first record, I ain't gonna eat my heart anymore. Ever, Lennox was desperate to put out an LP, and so they had when they signed us at the barge, they sent Tommy Dodge out with some recording equipment to record our our set. See what we had in our repertoire. We had no original songs. We were a cover band, but we found this. Felix and, and Dino found two songs one day uh, earlier in the year. It was Mustang Sally by Sir Mac Rice. And Good Lovin' by uh, Rudy Clark and Artie Resnick. And it was done by the Olympics. So we changed it around, and uh, we did our version of it. So we were in California at the time promoting I Ain't Gonna Eat My Heart Anymore. And I came home early, and they, they put me on the spot. They said, Atlantic put me on the spot. They said, I want you to listen to the mix on this, uh, what we wanted the next single, because the Rascals also were given final say as to what to put out. And I was so traumatized just sitting with these musical giants. I don't even remember hearing the record. <laughs> I just said, yes, let's go with it. And it became number one. Yeah, even though when you told the other guys in the band, they they thought you made the wrong decision until it started yeah, screaming up the charts, they right? They were upset. <laughs> It was set with me until it hit the charts. <laughs> We're talking with Gene Cornish here on Downtown. Uh, it it's hard, might be hard for people to imagine that one of your biggest hits, Groovin', was a song the record company didn't like at first. They liked the record. They didn't feel we should put it out as a single uh, because it didn't it didn't have an organ. It didn't have a set of drums. It didn't have a guitar in it. It had a Latino feel to it. And... Uh, was a, was a famous DJ named Murray Vickay who came by the session to hear it. He was a friend of ours. So Murray Vickay went into Atlantic Records because the, the radio station he was on, WINS, was across the street. And, he, you know, they were friends. And he guaranteed them that this would be a number one record. And they, they said, okay, we put it out. And we sold four million copies. You also reveal in the book uh, where those bird sounds came from on the record. Uh, a lot of people say, well, those samples? Well, there were no samples in those days. What there was in those days was a library that you could go and 
actually borrow a record that had bird songs, but those birds on the record, I swear to goodness, is Eddie and David Brigatti just fooling around before the take started. <laughs> One of my favorite Rascals records that came out a little bit later in 67, uh, A Girl Like You is just uh, such a great arrangement, some brilliant drumming uh, by Dino Donnelly. I love the brass section. That, that's that's in my top three of great Rascals songs. You know, Dino was, was, had a broad scope of playing drums. You know, he played R&B, he played rock and roll, and he played jazz. He, he was actually tutored by uh, Gene Cooper when he was a young boy at the Metropole. So uh, when, he, when this song came up, he just, he just shined. One of the things you talk about in the book, too, that I, I think you guys have to be proud of, both as a group and individually, is that rascal songs were always positive songs, always uplifting. Well, yeah, we didn't have any even destruction of there. <laughs> you know, we, we saw... We, we, we saw the world in a different way. We saw that we could offer something positive. And Felix came up with, with those ideas of the songs, and Eddie would write the lyrics, and uh, my songs, too. I, I had a couple of sad songs, but uh, never never about, you know, kill my landlord. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about the support you got from your parents. What was it like for you to have the opportunity to buy a house for your parents on Long Island? You know, the first house that was bought for our parents was for Eddie's mother and father. Uh, and this came right after Groovin became number one. And I remember calling my mom and dad because they still lived in Rochester. And they would come down, you know, and visit twice a year. So I said, I flew them down. I said, we're going to go out to Long Island. I'm looking for a house for myself. So I'd like you to come and see, help me find it. So we got, we got to Long Island, and I was dating a girl his father was a real estate agent, and he took us to three houses. In the third house, I looked around, it had a swimming pool, and had everything we never had, because we just had a little two, a two-bedroom apartment upstairs from the store. Never had a backyard, nothing like that. And this is like a, a quarter of an acre of land, a real in-ground pool, like I said, a fireplace, and I looked the whole thing over, and I said to mom and dad, what do you think? They said, oh, it's beautiful, I love it. And I turned to them, I said, it's yours. Wow. That's incredible. Well, uh, you guys moved from Atlantic to Columbia Records. Eddie, in that transition, ended up uh, leaving the band, and, and eventually the Rascals broke up. And you were the one who went on to have some initial success uh, with a couple of different bands, with Bulldog and then with Photomaker. Were those difficult times for you? Nah. Not a, well, when we left the Rascals, uh, we weren't... It was a stupid move, you know, but we left Atlantic Records to go to Columbia Records, which meant we lost our Reese Martin, who helped us make all those final, final records. And then Eddie left. And then finally, Dino and I thought to myself, well, if this is going to go this way, we got to put a band together. We put Bulldog together, and we were on Decca Records and Buddha Records, and we got, got some moderate chart action. We didn't set the world on fire. Then about um, four years later, we started a group called Photomaker, and uh, Raleigh Bryson from the Raspberries was uh, uh, one of the guitar players, and three guys from Long Island and me and Dino. Uh, so basically it was uh, on Atlantic Records, and we made the charts twice again, and then finally it just, you know, it was over. 
Uh, you're very honest in the book uh, in dealing with some of the, the dark days in your life. And, and while you avoided this, and most of the guys did when you were with the Rascals, eventually uh, you developed a, a pretty severe drug addiction, cocaine, your drug of choice. And those were some pretty dark years. Was it difficult to go back and revisit that for the book? Yeah, it was. Uh, you know what? I Writing this book was like an exorcism for me. It poured out of me. It didn't stop. You know, uh, me and Stephen Miller would drive about 40 miles into New Jersey at my friend's house, and we'd sit at the dining room table every Friday for two and a half years. And basically, I would dictate whatever was in my brain and what questions he wanted to ask into the phone. And he would go home. That we can put it on paper. And, and when I talked about the drug days, when I talked about actually being homeless for a while, sleeping on people's couches or doing whatever I had to, uh, I, never I never went on a drunk binge where I was on the street, but I was what I call, what they call a functioning addict. Mm. But I wasted a lot of years. Well, uh, we talk about turning points in your life, and I have to think another one of them was meeting Debbie. What has she done for you in your life? Oh, uh, that's my voice. That's my voice of reason. She was the reason why I cleaned up, first of all, because I didn't want to lose her. Um, I'm sober eight years now. Clean as a whistle. Uh, as I said, she's my partner in life. She's my life. She's the love of my life. And uh, basically, that's it. You know, she, she enthused me to write this book also. Now, the Rascals that got back together for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, and then uh, because of the work and the efforts of uh, Stevie Van Zant, you guys did a Once Upon a Dream, which became uh, a hugely successful Broadway show and a tour. On the one hand, it was great to be back together, and, and for a while things were going well, but, but eventually, uh, whether it was... Uh, the pressure of trying to recreate what had been, or whether it was egos, uh, it, it didn't last as long as everybody hoped it would. But was that still a positive experience for you to get back together and bring that music oh, to a new generation? To all of us, first of all, once upon a dream, Steve, uh, Eddie Bergotti called Stephen a psychologist and an alligator wrestler. <laughs> he, he put us together, he got us all together, got us to check our guns at the door. Once they started playing the music, that was it. There was no lawyers involved. There was no there was no losses. It was all about the music. And we got to play with tens of thousands of fans who waited 40 years for us. And it's so amazing and so gratifying that these people would show up at, at you know, sold-out concerts, and the curtain would come down. It was a curtain. It was a kabuki curtain that would come down and set up. And, and the lights would go on. <laughs> I get emotional about it. It was just amazing vibe. It was like it was like a love match of tennis. You know, they would send the love to us, and we'd send it back. And uh, we did seventy shows that year. Well, it's the book so, is wonderful, and the forward for the book is written by your former bandmate. Felix Cavalieri. And one of the things I was most impressed with, Gene, in the book is that the feeling from beginning to end that despite any differences you might have had along the way, these guys to you are still your brothers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Felix and I are still bandmates because we did a short tour uh, uh, about a year and a half ago. And then I, I, got, I got a cardiac arrest in Billings, Montana, so that ended it for a while. Yeah, and you talk about that in the book, too, and those uh, two angels who happened to be in the audience who really saved your life. 
Well, they were part of it, you know. First of all, I was blessed. Uh, the good Lord blessed me with having it happen on stage and not in my dressing room mm. or in my hotel room, so we wouldn't be talking right now. So they jumped on stage and started helping me. But the other blessing is, is the number one cardiac facility in all of Montana, and, and it was in Billings, four blocks away. Well, it's a remarkable story. The book is called Good Lovin', My Life as a Rascal. Gene Cornish, uh, written with Stephen Miller. Uh, Gene, it's great to talk with you. Thank you so much for visiting with us, and thank you for all the great music through the years. We wish you continued good health. Can I mention that the book is available on Amazon.com? You just did, and it's out there, and people should get it. It is a great read. Thank you so much, Gene. Thank you very much for your time. God bless everyone. Thank you. It's Gene Cornish of The Rascals. And a really great conversation with a good guy. I hope he continues to remain in good health. He's had some battles in the last year or so, but it was a real treat for us to have a chance to talk with him. Our thanks to Gene and thanks to the legendary Kim Novak as well. And thanks to you for joining us on Downtown the Podcast, episode 95 this week. Brought to you as always by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time here on Downtown.